Envoy is an open-source edge and service proxy that was originally developed at Lyft. Envoy is often deployed as a sidecar application that runs alongside a service and helps that service by providing features such as routing, rate limiting, telemetry, and security policy. Envoy has gained significant traction in the open-source community and has formed the backbone of popular service mesh projects such as Istio. Envoy has been mostly used as a back-end technology, but the potential applications of Envoy include front-end client applications as well. The goal of Envoy is to make the network easier to work with, and the network includes client applications such as mobile apps running on a phone. Envoy Mobile is a network proxy for mobile applications. Envoy Mobile brings many of the benefits of Envoy to the mobile client ecosystem. It provides mobile developers with a library that can simplify or abstract away many of the modern advances that have been made in networking in recent years, such as HTTP2, gRPC, and Quick. Matt Klein is the creator of Envoy, and he returns to the show to discuss Envoy Mobile. Matt describes how the networking challenges of mobile applications are similar to those of back-end systems and cloud infrastructure. We discuss the advances in networking technology that Envoy Mobile helps bring to the mobile ecosystem, and also touch on the scalability challenges that Matt is seeing at Lyft. Matt has been on the show a couple times previously, and you can find all those episodes with Matt and the episodes about Envoy, the episodes about Service Mesh. You can find all those on the SE Daily apps for iOS and Android. We've refactored these apps recently, and they are in great shape. They are a great listening experience for Software Engineering Daily, and they include the ability to comment and search through episodes. I will be commenting on each episode going forward for the foreseeable future. So if you're interested in discussing Software Engineering Daily, check out the apps or go to softwaredaily.com, which is the web version of our platform, and share your thoughts. You can also use these apps to become a paid subscriber and get ad-free episodes. Also, Find Collabs is the company I'm building. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. If you've got an open source project or a music project or really any kind of project and you're looking for collaborators, you want people to collaborate with you on your project or even start a company with, you can check out findcollabs.com. With that, let's get on to today's show. Matt Klein, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. The goal of the original Envoy project was to make the network easier to work with. Give a reminder of the networking problems that Envoy addresses. Yeah, so what we've seen as most folks have moved to microservice architectures is that, uh, you know, they typically run into a bunch of common scaling problems. And these are typically around networking and observability. And, you know, these are things like not being able to understand where failures are occurring or not having consistent uh, networking features around things like service discovery, load balancing, timeouts, retries, things like that. And at the same time, what we've seen in the last five or 10 years is that folks have moved away from situations in which they typically use a single language. So, you know, the, the, the times of uh, enterprise Java deployment are, are, are typically over. 
or a single Java enterprise deployment. And what we see these days is we typically see what I call a polyglot language environment. And that means that either via acquisition or companies that are allowing developers to develop in multiple languages, we see quite a few different languages that companies are using in production. And what that ends up leading to is that in order to solve some of these common concerns, again, around service discovery, load balancing, observability, etc., companies essentially have two different choices. They can implement libraries in each language, and, and those libraries can actually go through and they can implement all those common concerns, but then, of course, they have to do that in each language. Or we've seen a, a, a pattern that's become popular over the last few years, uh, which is the sidecar proxy pattern, and that sidecar proxy can implement a bunch of that functionality, and then that can be done in a single language, and then if a company is using five or seven or 10 different languages, those frameworks can rely on the sidecar proxy to actually implement that, that functionality. So Envoy was built as a originally as a sidecar proxy to, to do these types of things. And then over the past few years, as, as it's become a lot more popular, we've seen Envoy being used in a variety of different situations. We see it being used for edge load balancing. We see it being used in a sidecar or a client-side load balancing scenario. And then we also see it being used as an internal or a middle proxy scenario. And the reason that we've seen it being used in all, all of these cases is that having a single piece of technology that an organization knows how to operate it's very nice to be able to use it in all of these cases. So the organization only has to learn how to use it once. So, you know, we are solving a bunch of common concerns and, and we're solving them both for the sidecar proxy scenario, but also for the edge scenario or the middle proxy scenario. These different scenarios, the edge proxy, the backend sidecar proxy, these are not mobile application proxies. Correct. The, the original Envoy was mostly used for server-side application, and mobile applications are more of a client-side situation. How do the networking challenges of mobile differ from the networking challenges that are experienced on the server-side? You know, what's super interesting is that they don't they don't actually differ that much. I mean, of course, you know, there are lossy networks and much more frequently we wind up in environments in which the mobile clients have to deal with either spotty networks or slow networks. But, you know, in terms of what the mobile clients have to do, it, it ends up being pretty similar. They have to do some type of service discovery to find backends, whether that typically uses something like DNS. They have to make RPCs. They have to have retry policies and timeouts and, you know, those, those types of things. And I think the other thing that's happened over the past couple of years, in particular, as many applications have moved to mobile, mobile first applications, is that we have realized from an industry perspective that all of the effort that we're putting into making the server-side system more reliable is obviously fantastic. But you know, if at the edge proxy, we have a, let's say, 99.99% success rate or four nines, you know, that's obviously great. But if the user of the mobile application is only seeing a 75% success rate, it doesn't matter how amazing our infrastructure is on that 
server side. So we end up needing a lot of the same observability, a lot of the same, a lot of the same things that we need on that server side. We need it on the client side so that we can make sure that we are delivering, you know, that fantastic experience to our users. There are many things that can go wrong on a mobile client device. You could have a poor cellular network, you could have a problem with the operating system. How do we differentiate between problems in the network versus problems that are just happening as a result of and well I guess and when I when I say network I should say the programmatic network rather than the cellular network or just something that's going wrong in the operating system or something that's beyond your control. Sure. You know, when you actually sit down and think about it, it's not really any different than than what we do on the server side in the sense that if I have a service that talks to another service and I'm running within like some some type of virtual infrastructure, how do I know if it's my application? How do I know if it's the virtual machine? How how do I know if it's the physical network? So it's really the same the same set of problems. And I guess the quick answer, which is not very satisfying, is that sometimes it can be very difficult to tell. And all we can do from a network operation standpoint is we can try to build in the right metrics, the the right analytics, the right logging, so that we can view the network at different layers and we can try to correlate failure. And that might mean, you know, trying to look for patterns. So are we seeing, for example, all of our users who are on the T-Mobile network, are they seeing a particular problem that might be indicative of a network failure? Are we only seeing issues, you know, with users who are on a particular version of iOS, right? That would indicate that maybe we have some bug that's related to that version of that operating system. So what it comes down to is that there's very rarely a smoking gun. And I think what's much more important is to have the right infrastructure in place so that, again, we can gather the right stats, the right logging, the right tracing, the right analytics, and then we can start debugging and we can start trying to understand what are the patterns that we're seeing. So, you know, when we start to talk about why we would want to run something like Envoy on the mobile client, um, a lot of the reason that we want to do that is that it gives us a base platform with which we can actually, you know, emit a lot of these metrics, a lot of these analytics, and a lot of this logging so that we can, you know, do the right debugging to actually start to understand where the problems are happening. So there are tools for observability that are on the mobile device. There are things like crash reporting. Why is it advantageous to create a module like Envoy Mobile where all of these things would be centralized into one system? Sure. You know, the main rationale is really for the same reason that we've seen people start to really utilize this sidecar proxy paradigm, which is that if we have a polyglot environment where we're using, you know, different frameworks, different programming languages, potentially different operating systems, what we can do as system developers and system operators is what I call reducing cognitive load. And, and by that, I mean that we are developing these super complicated distributed systems. And the only way to, to, to really understand this effective chaos is to try to limit the number of variables. 
So, you know, we would like to avoid re-implementing code in multiple places. We would like to have single implementations of things like retry policies. So for the same reason that it's potentially advantageous to use something like Envoy as a sidecar or a system proxy, because we get a bunch of this functionality in one place, instead of having to go and implement a bunch of this logic, you know, and again, that could be for uh, networking primitives like retries and timeouts, or it could be for stats logging and tracing. Instead of having to implement that, you know, on both iOS and Android and support every operating system version, we can implement this in one place and we can get the same output in every place. And that reduces cognitive load and makes it a lot easier to understand what's, what's actually happening. And what's interesting about this is that there, there is actually quite a lot of prior precedent for this. Google has a library called Cronet, which they have shipped for quite some time. It's a section of uh, the code that ships with the Chrome browser. They use that code in all of their mobile applications. So that's common C++ code that is used both on Android as well as iOS. Facebook also has a long history of doing something similar. So, uh, you know, this is something that's been done for, you know, quite some time, but we think that with Envoy Mobile, we can take this paradigm and we can do even more. The backend model for deploying Envoy is in this sidecar container. In mobile environments, I guess we don't use containers or they're at least not as much of a, a present deployment system as they are in the back end. So you're using, you're just bundling it as part of the binary. Is that right? Like if an application wants to use Envoy Mobile, they, they just include it as a library? Yeah, right. So it's going back on some of the things that I've typically spoken about, which is that, you know, the library-based solution is not very productive and you have to deal with upgrades, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the current realities, I would say, of how people ship mobile applications are, are that the code has to be bundled. Um, and so our initial target for Envoy Mobile is to actually bundle the code as a library component and then actually ship that out. I do think that in the medium long term, if we are successful with this project, I could see the sidecar pattern Moving over to mobile, uh, you know, there's there's people that I've talked to over at Google that have expressed interest in this. I would imagine that Apple might be interested also, but I think that we'll have to see how things evolve. But in the short to medium term, I, I think we are looking at a bundled library. Compare the deployment model for using Envoy on the back end with Envoy Mobile. I, I understand it's it's a binary, and and so that's you know a little bit different. Can you just describe if let's say I'm a, I'm an application developer, maybe I've got like a food delivery app, and the food delivery app has has existed for six years. It's on the app store now. I want to add Envoy Mobile to it. What's that experience like? So to be super clear, it is very, very, very early days for the project. We made an explicit decision to open source early. So we proved that we can get it running on both platforms. Um, we have open sourced our roadmap, but it's still, I would say, very, very early days. So, in, you know, in terms of what, what will happen for the user, what the API will actually look like, I think that's still being sorted out. But I, I think the idea is that 
We are going to offer a networking library, and the, the goal of this library is to not expose any of the C++ code up to the end user. Our goal is to build a future-looking network API. So, and by future-looking, I mean using the more modern mobile programming languages. So that'll be Swift on iOS and Kotlin on Android. And our plans are to, you know, surface a mobile networking library that offers various pieces of functionality. So that's going to be making API calls, obviously dealing with different types of APIs, whether that be REST-based or proto-based. And then eventually we expect to add a bunch of higher layer functionality. So one of the things that I'm most excited about is that as we move towards proto or structured APIs, being able to offer higher layer functionality. So things like streaming API caching or offline or deferred APIs, things like that. And I, I think that will really move the state of the art of mobile networking forward. So in terms of how people will consume this in the future is that we expect to offer an API. It probably, you know, we, we, we may make it look like existing APIs. So for example, we would look at okay, HTTP as uh, something that we might want to emulate. But I think that we are looking at this from a blank slate perspective and just trying to understand what would a modern mobile networking API look like. And then as we add more functionality, again, we expect to add ergonomic APIs that will allow people to admit you know, stats, logging, and tracing, uh, enable them to opt into some of these more advanced features. And that would apply both to you know, JSON, REST-based APIs, and then for those users that are moving towards the proto or the structured APIs, we would allow them to opt into even further features. As I was reading your article, I was uh, I did have to look up a couple of the networking technologies that you touched on in the article because one of the things you were saying is if you get this proxy in your application you can defer some of the work of low-level networking technology to this proxy. So there, there have been this, this set of networking technologies that have improved over the last five to seven years, and they're not necessarily available out of the box to anyone building a mobile application. Describe some of these lower-level networking technologies. Yeah, so these are things like modern TLS, so TLS 1.3, which has both uh, performance as well as security enhancements, things like QUIC or HTTP3. Uh, you know, this is the next next gen networking protocol, which is, which is aimed for mobile or lossy environments. And what we typically see on mobile is that just because of the longer development times, the fact that handsets tend to be in the wild for longer, you know, we typically see a slower adoption of these types of, of, I would say, newer or more advanced networking protocols. So if a mobile application wants to depend on something like TLS 1.3 or Quick, it may be years before essentially all of the platforms across both iOS and Android and all of the OS versions that they want to support with their application, it may be years before they can rely on those technologies being available. And that's not only years of potentially uh, slightly worse security or slightly worse performance, 
it's years of, again, having that cognitive load, right? If you're having to support your application across, you know, two different major vendor ecosystems, a bunch of different operating systems, that debugging cognitive load just becomes so much larger because you have to start understanding, you know, where is this bug report from or how do I slice and dice based on the version of the operating system or the platform that the user is actually using. So, you know, being able to relegate or uh, offload a bunch of this functionality to common code, whether that be a sidecar proxy or even a library, it allows for a consistency of experience and that improves both cognitive load, it potentially per- improves security, it improves performance. So that's ultimately what, what we're going for. And then like I was saying before, we think that once we have this base functionality in place, just like we can do a bunch with the sidecar proxy pattern of offloading you know, more complicated functionality or more advanced functionality, we think that we, that we can do that on the mobile side as well. So if we're implementing caching for streaming APIs or doing a deferred or offline APIs, instead of having to you know, implement that and test that and understand that uh, across both Android and iOS, if we can do that in a single code base, it allows us to focus on that code base, make sure that it's well tested, make sure that it has high, high performance, and that just seems like a better use of time. Can you shed more light on why this stuff doesn't get bundled into the operating system like if it's just it seems like such a free lunch right if it's just networking technology that improves your performance and your reliability and your security why is it not an os level improvement to be fair it is you know so google and apple they obviously will work on technologies like tls 1.3 or they will work on quick but Again, because of the longer cycles of how these handsets are built and right, like if if Google releases a new version of Android, then it has to go to Samsung or it has to go to the, you know, different different makers of phones and they have to certify the operating system and then they have to get it onto the phone. So there can be multi-year cycles, you know, before a particular piece of technology even gets to a shipping phone for the first time. So just those OS cycles tend to be longer. And because of the risk of, of breaking existing handsets, Google and Apple, you know, they typically don't backfill major features for a long period of time. So what you see within the industry is a handset, you know, it might get shipped on a particular version of Android and then, or, you know, one of Apple's handsets might get shipped on a particular version of iOS. And, you know, those handsets may see one or two operating system upgrades in their lifetime, right? So it's not like Apple or Android continues, sorry, or Apple or Google continues to support all, you know, handsets in perpetuity for OS upgrades. That's just not the way that it works. So it's not that they're not working on it. These things are OS concerns. It's just that it it takes a long time to get all of these technologies to every user and in that time frame there's some newer technology so if you or if one wants their mobile application to always be at the forefront uh, of that technology at the networking layer and again whether that's for security or performance or features it's nearly impossible to ensure that every user of one's application has access to that and that's why we see even google who obviously runs android they ship 
you know, this library to all of their mobile applications because they and Facebook both view it as a competitive advantage to make sure that they have a consistent networking experience across all of their applications, regardless of the operating system version. So if you bundle the networking stack with the application, then as your application gets updated, then the networking stack gets updated and people definitely update their apps more aggressively than their operating system. Exactly right. And again, that's that's not to say that in a future world, something like Envoy might not be bundled in a way where it's out of band from the operating system, but it sees updates, but it's a shared library or a, or a shared proxy if you will. I could see the industry moving in that direction, but that's not where we are today. When I make a request from my mobile application these days, is that request usually in JSON? Is it in a protocol buffer? What format is it in? Hard for me to answer that. It's hard for me to speak across the industry. If I had to guess, I would say that the majority of API requests that that, that go from a mobile application to a backend service are probably JSON, YAML, REST type APIs. I do think that there is uh, increasing uptake of structured APIs, whether that be using a technology like Thrift or protocol buffers. I think protocol buffers is becoming the default structured API. So I think that over time, as it becomes easier to consume protocol buffer APIs, I, I think that we're going to see more and more, uh, more and more APIs be based on them. As I've written about before, I, I think Protocol Buffers version 3, or as people say, Proto 3, I, I think it's a really fantastic technology. I, I, I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, I just think Google has put a tremendous amount of thought into it. And one of the nicest features that I find about Proto 3 is that it allows APIs to be defined in a structured manner. So everything is typed, but it also allows seamless conversion between that structured representation to JSON or YAML. So to me, it really gives you the best of both worlds, which is that you can define APIs in a structured way and you can seamlessly transcode them between JSON, YAML and structured. And I think that once more folks realize that inherent power, which is that you really get the best of all situations, you can you know, support backwards compatible clients that only want to deal with JSON, but your internal systems can be structured. You know, I, for me, there's almost no downside to it and the tooling is getting better and better and better. So though today I, I would say that the majority of developers probably still you know, use raw uh, JSON, YAML, REST type APIs. I do think that over time that we will see more and more APIs move to being structured. What is required of a developer that wants to use protocol buffers in their application? So what is essentially required today is that the APIs obviously have to be defined. So that happens in a structured file. And then those APIs have to be essentially compiled. So what the what the protocol buffer compiler does is it compiles language specific representations of those APIs. 
and you know that gets emitted out into all of the, all of the different languages that protocol buffer supports and then you know those apis can either be used raw or uh, google uh, supports a technology called grpc which essentially is just a wrapper on top of protocol buffer that allows for the sending and receiving of protocol buffer based apis so from a end user perspective, typically the easiest way to consume protocol buffer based APIs is probably going to be via gRPC. So that will be defining the APIs using the generated gRPC clients and servers and then just running wild. But again, what we've seen historically, and this is getting better every day, is that the gRPC generated code is of differing quality depending on the language. And again, we come back to you know, this inherent trade-off of the library-based solution versus the sidecar-based solution. And you know, if we are making APIs and we want to co-generate those APIs in a bunch of different languages, there's obviously no way around doing that in each and every language. But as you might imagine, some languages currently have better support than others. So, you know, if you're writing in Java, obviously the support will be amazing. If you're writing in a less frequently used language, the support might not be quite as good. So, you know, that is evolving over time. And what we've seen at Lyft, for example, is that Lyft is a very forward-thinking user of Swift. So we actually were one of the first, I think, companies to rewrite our iOS application using Swift. And historically, for example, the protocol buffer-based support for Swift has not been quite as good. So Lyft has actually worked a bunch on open sourcing Swift co-generators. But over time, I think as more people want to consume protocol buffer APIs, I, I would think that the co-generators will get better and better and better in every language. And then I think it will increasingly become easier to use. Does Envoy Mobile help with the usage of protocol buffers at all? Or what's the connection between protocol buffers and Envoy Mobile? Right. So from the Envoy Mobile perspective, I would say that there's, uh, you know, there's two different angles that we're actually coming at this from. One of the angles is from the lowest layer. So that's what we already talked about in terms of providing consistent networking across both platforms. So these are base networking uh, technologies, like making sure that we support Quick or we support TLS 1.3 or we support uh, modern extensions to for propagating network quality or things like that. And that's obviously one angle that we are approaching it from. The other angle that we're approaching it from is from the top-down angle, and that's from the protocol buffer-based uh, based angle. And one of the nice things about protocol buffers is that it supports something called annotations. And an annotation is a way of, given a particular API, which is messages and fields, and those fields can have types, on a field, you can provide custom tags or custom annotations. And those annotations are where we plan on supporting some of this advanced features. So for example, again, caching, uh, offline deferred APIs. We imagine a scenario where if Envoy Mobile can determine the current network quality. So for example, if Envoy Mobile can consistently determine, you know, we are on a fast Wi-Fi network or we are on a fast LTE network, you know, we might use the enhanced version of the API or let's say that the library determines that we are on a spotty network, maybe we can start, you know, we can dynamically shift to a degraded API that uses less bytes back and forth and will probably load faster for the user. 
So once we have this ability to provide these custom annotations, we would allow the Envoy mobile layer to actually operate on those annotations. So, you know, there would be nothing company specific about those annotations. So company or organization A can define their API, but they can use a common set of annotations and company B can do the same and so on. And then Envoy Mobile, given the definitions of the APIs, can actually operate on those annotations in a, an API agnostic way. So even though the API might be talking about uh, ride sharing for Lyft or it might be talking about music for someone else, all of these applications can get a common set of functionality. And what we think, and again, as I was saying before, this project is in very early days, I would encourage everyone to check out our repo and obviously follow along. We think that we will probably support the gRPC wire protocol so that Envoy Mobile will always be compatible with gRPC servers. But what I would imagine may end up happening is we may have our own Envoy Mobile co-generators so that if you are using Swift or Kotlin, we can generate you library stubs or API stubs that will give you all of this advanced functionality and you won't need to worry about the underlying mechanics. So I would suspect that, that that's how this will play out it is that again, there'll be two angles here. We'll have the lower layer networking angle and then we'll have the top down API based angle. We'll be focusing on both. You bring up an interesting point. The idea of API degradation where if I'm using Lyft, for example, and if I'm on a great network connection, I'd be fine with my Lyft application heartbeating with the back end with uh, tons of information about where I am and my velocity and so on, just tons of information. But if I get to a spotty cellular connection, I definitely want the Lyft backend to know where I am. And that's the, maybe the core of, of what you would want to send is like, here's my geo every 10 seconds or something. If you're on a really bad connection, maybe you just send it every 10 seconds, like as low as that. But the idea that you would want different volumes of information sent to the backend under different cellular connections I would guess that most mobile applications don't don't factor in that option. If for no other reason, then it, it's pretty hard to to just like what do you have as like a switch statement? It's like if cellular bit connectivity is three bars, do this. If it's four bars, do that. And so so putting that into a a usable API sounds sounds pretty uh pretty handy. Well, you know what we see, and we we've seen this across like almost every type of application. And I have personally seen this at multiple companies now. It's been widely reported at tons of other companies. And it's actually, it's a very simple thing, which is that we almost universally see that when applications are faster, when they are snappier, when they load, you know, when the user perceives them to load quickly, business conversion is higher. And again, like we, we just see this across almost every application and we can see pretty substantial differences. Like these are not, you know, small conversion differences. Like they can be many, many, many percentage points. 
So from a business perspective, and that's why I think you've seen investment in protocols like Quick and for other types of technology that are really focused on ultimately making the, the user's application snappier. So when we see this, again, almost universally across every application, it's widely accepted within the industry now that that focusing on making the end user's application snappier and degrade well is a very, very worthwhile thing. So then the question becomes, how, how does one do that, right? And like you were saying, it's certainly possible, you know, to have a bunch of switch statements and if statements and like, you know, specific logic in every application that's trying to determine, you know, like network degradation and those those types of things. But we believe that there's a tremendous opportunity to do this within the library and that if we do this well, we can actually be a lot more sophisticated about it and a lot more general about it than than any one application could probably justify doing within only only their application. And we can provide the right hooks and the right tags and the right annotations so that, again, just to just to go back to Lyft, you can imagine. And, and again, I'm not I'm not speaking about any particular plans here. I'm just trying to give an example. You can imagine with Lyft that, that yes, like as you pointed out, we have core functionality that must happen. Like we must, you know, provide location data occasionally. We must obviously when we're requesting rides, we must show car locations. But maybe there's other things that are important, but they're not critical. So for example, let's say that we want to show coupons or something like that, or or we wanna give updates on the app, or you know, like there might be all types of things that are important, but if we're in a really poor networking environment, maybe we just don't wanna show those right now because the, the critical data has to come through faster. And we believe that by you know making the API structured and by annotating and tagging the API in certain ways, and then having the network layer be smart about what can be dropped both by the server and the client, we think that in these poor networking environments, we can greatly reduce the bytes sent back and forth. And like I was saying before, ultimately, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is you just need to send less bytes back and forth. The fewer bytes, you know, in general, the faster things are going to load and the faster things are going to load with the right functionality, the better business conversion is going to be. We've done some shows about the service mesh idea, which is that as a expansion on the model that we've been talking about where you have a proxy and you have a proxy on every service and the proxies can talk to each other and because you have you know a standard proxy for communication between different services you have a a more reliable network and you have some uh, homogeneity then the next phase on top of that is the idea that you can do control across all of these different proxies. And so you have a unified control plane that interacts with all these different proxies. Did Envoy Mobile change your vision for what the ideal service mesh would look like? Yeah. So this is certainly not our short-term goal. It's probably not even our medium-term goal. But when I look out long-term, and and there's obviously a big if here, if the project finds success, if we can get wide deployment, I I think there is a huge amount of long-term potential here in terms of how 
people actually manage how they configure networking on their mobile applications. And some of your listeners will will probably chuckle at this, but you know, I, I think there I think there is the potential to quote unquote expand the service mesh out to the mobile client. And and, and I'm sure that will scare people greatly, right? But by that, really, all I mean is that one of the reasons that Envoy, you know, I think I think Envoy has become very popular for a couple of different reasons, but one of the reasons that Envoy has become very popular is because of its configuration API. And these are APIs that collectively we called XDS. These are our discovery service APIs. And at least on the server side, we've seen now an entire ecosystem of companies, whether they be cloud providers or startups or, or individual companies, uh, you know, who are building these management systems that manage fleets of envoys. And what you'll see is that if we assume for a second that envoy runs on a bunch of mobile applications or even just the mobile applications for a company that's already using envoy, if we can use these real-time configuration APIs to do things like traffic shifting or potentially authentication or on the fly actually, you know, change retry policies or, you know, maybe we want to shift just a single route to a particular data center or we'd like to test something or something along those lines, there is the ability to really change how how mobile networking is configured, how the policy is actually sent out. And these are these are not really science fiction things. So so for example, to give a concrete example, you know, the the state of the art today in terms of how major mobile applications tend to do traffic shifting, load balancing, load shedding is they typically use DNS and they typically use BGP. And, you know, people have done some incredible things, right? Like they they use DNS to find the closest location and then they'll use BGP to, you know, make sure that we're routing to the right place and pretty amazing sets of technology. But in, in some ways, just, and again, we could do a whole show on the complexities of how people do, how people do edge routing, but to make a very long story short, there's, there's a lot of complexity just in how people end up using DNS and how you can have intermediary clients that do caching in weird ways or with BGP, how, uh, you know, occasionally, uh, you can get routes that are just black hole and then there's basically no more route and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the thing about potentially offering something like XDS all the way to the mobile application is that although, of course, the actual XDS management server would have to be bootstrapped over something like DNS, there's probably no way around that. Once the mobile application is able to get configuration data, even if it's heavily cached or you know we're, we're, we're using different, different types of mechanisms to actually scale that, we can do much more real-time traffic shifting. We can do much more real-time load shedding. And we can do that in a way that actually works works similarly, right, to how server-side is doing. So if you look at some of, of the managed control planes that are sprouting up, so Google has a product called Traffic Director, Amazon has a product called App Mesh. These are, of course, these are targeted towards server-side load balancing and server-side policy. But you could pretty easily imagine some of these control planes extending all the way out to mobile. 
Because if I have multiple data centers or I have multiple regions and I'm trying to load balance and I'm trying to actually shed traffic between these regions, either for performance or fault tolerance, why would I not potentially want that to apply all the way to my mobile client as well? So that's just a, a small taste, right? I, I think that if we're successful, I, I think that you know we may be able to rethink how some of this policy actually happens, which is which is pretty exciting. Whenever I talk to people about mobile application development, I get a sense that there is significantly less dynamism in how we can roll out these applications, largely because of the uh, the App Store gating process. I think that has been eaten away a little bit with things like React Native, where you have some dynamism that just gets bundled into the application. And then this might be another example where if you bundle in this dynamic you know, networking technology, then maybe you could, you could issue more dynamic networking updates, which would be cool. But just because you're kind of like a, a back-end developer who has waded into the uh, mobile application space because of Envoy Mobile, what's your perspective on that? app store gating process is that useful how and how problematic is it for to or to you i'll be perfectly honest in saying that i am far from an expert here so i don't i don't think i can provide a truly educated perspective on that i fully understand that both apple and google you know they're they're trying to have some quality control and i think that's fine i think as you've said, you know, there's been a back and forth between application developers and, you know, Google and Apple in terms of what is allowed, what is not allowed. You know, when you talk about dynamic code generation, one of the things that we're working on right now on server-side Envoy is actually WebAssembly support. So, and we'll have APIs on server-side where a management server can actually ship out pre-compiled WebAssembly bundles to Envoys and actually run them. And we believe that there's tremendous potential here for actually today within Envoy, we obviously have Lua and yes, it is possible today to actually update Lua code from the management server, but Lua has its own issues. But from a, from a WebAssembly approach, you can imagine a world in which people want to write extensions. You know, maybe those extensions are written in Go or Rust or C++, but they're inherently safe because they're WebAssembly and they're written to a particular sandbox or runtime. You can imagine a system in which in real time, right, like almost almost like kernel level TCP dump style rules, imagine that I can compile a small WebAssembly program and I can send that out to my server-side envoys to actually do you know, extremely efficient matching so that I can do traffic tapping or maybe blocking rules or things like that. Now, you could think in the far future, if I can do that server-side envoy, why couldn't I do that out to mobile, right? Like why couldn't I potentially have a part of my network logic that's maybe implemented in something like WebAssembly and it's shipped over XDS to the app and it's obviously cached. Now, would that run afoul the Apple or Google App Store rules? It, it, it probably would today. But as you pointed out, there's things that are happening in the React worlds where there is dynamic programming happening. So I think it's a very interesting topic. And I my suspicion is that, you know, Apple and Google over time, you know, we'll probably adapt to the to the modern realities, right? But 
I think that it's going to be a give and take over time, right? I don't see the app store process going away. So I think that from, you know, the Envoy mobile perspective, we obviously are going to uh, do everything within the rules. And then, you know, if we are successful and we want to do things in the future that might break the rules, we'll obviously have those conversations. Yeah, I mean, I do have I do have some respect for the, the App Store review process just because our mobile devices are these things that we've come to rely on so much. So if you had if if you had an application that that if if you could skip the review process, you could get applications in the App Store that would just instantly brick your phone. Yep. And that's like bricking your lifeline in some in some conditions. So I don't know. I again, I'm I'm not an expert either, but I didn't want to give the impression that I'm just a uh, total cowboy and want to uh, remove the app store review process. No, of course. And you know what happens over time also is that I think if you look back eight eight ten years, I'm guessing that the that the app store review process was even more important because the operating system, the mobile operating system, probably had less control and less safeguard over an application using too much battery or using too much network or stuff like that. And I, I think over time, it's been pretty clear that the mobile operating system vendors, they're obviously continuing to invest in those types of sandboxing or those types of safeguards because you know, the App Store review process is only so good, right? You obviously want the right safeguards in place so that even if something slips through, like you said, you know, an application can't break that device. So it might even be the case that as the sandboxing gets better and better and better, maybe the review process can get a little less stringent. But but again, this is not my, not my area of expertise. So I know we're running out of time. It's been pretty interesting talking to you a few times over the last couple of years about how the challenges at Lyft have evolved over time, the scalability challenges. Are you encountering anything new? I think you, how, how many years have you been there at this point? Over four years. So it's the time, the time just flies. Four years. So what are the newer things that you're seeing these days that are uh, presenting challenges that didn't exist before? I think I think what we're seeing now is, you know, whereas I think before, at least on the Envoy or the or the networking side of things, we were developing features and doing and doing all types of things, right? That were aimed at again, like whether that be retries or timeouts or feature after feature after feature. I would say that the major scaling problems that Lyft now, at least the ones that I'm seeing from an infrastructure perspective. They're less technology problems and more people scaling problems. And and by that, I mean, it's trying to figure out, you know, we've gone from, I think when I joined, the whole company was probably less than 300 people for sure. So maybe 250, 275, and there's probably 75 developers or something like that. Now, you know, I actually have no idea. We're probably over 5,000 people as a company and, you know, there's over a thousand developers, maybe even 1500. So, I mean, we know we've probably at least 10 X in size in the four years that I've been here. And I think what we've seen from a scaling perspective is that even if the technology maybe works, we have just, we've reached a scaling threshold where, you know, there's never enough documentation, right? Like when you're dealing with 1500 people, if even if one person only has a question every two weeks, if you start doing the math, that's a constant stream of questions. So 
where I'm actually leading with this is that I, I think what you know we begin to realize at this human scale is that we just need less knobs, right? Like we need a, a concrete example of something that's killed us is manually configured circuit breakers. So trying to make sure that every application has the right safety guards in place or the right timeouts, it's just there's there's too much entropy. It's too difficult to manually you know ensure that all of these things are correct. So now we're starting to invest in tooling, you know, to to either kind of determine these settings from historical context or eventually just do away with the settings entirely and make them adaptive. But I, I think that's that's really where these scaling problems are. It's not in needing a specific piece of technology or a specific feature. It's more in how the system is configured. So I, I think at least from Lyft's perspective, development has moved uh, you know really away from core envoy i think lyft does very few envoy features anymore and the effort has shifted much more in terms of how the system is managed or how we expose all of these knobs to our users all right well we did a, a show about that that was our last conversation just as a final question have there been any like personality adjustments that you've made to yourself or, or philosophical adjustments to accommodate that because I imagine it just feels like if you let it, the environment is just pulling on you all the time to, you know, hey, Matt, do this thing, do that thing. Like, it's just, you know, I don't know. Do you have any, have any words of wisdom? <laughs> wow. We, we should probably get together and, and do probably an entire show on this topic. <laughs> well, we already because did. I, I, well, yeah. I, uh, well, I, I don't know. I just, I just feel like there's even more. I, you know, it's... I guess for me, and this is coming at it from a personal perspective, is I have had to learn over the past couple of years both how to scale myself, but also just, you know, how to let the organization evolve in its own way or its own path, right? And and I think that just comes back to human scalability is that when you move from a smaller organization to one that's 10 times the size, I think it, it just, you know, things take on a life of their own, right? And I think for me, it's just, I would say, accepting some of the realities of how modern companies either do support, how they do DevOps, and trying to toe the line, right, of trying to figure out what is the right amount of documentation? When is documentation not going to work and we just have to automate something, right? And, and I, I think there's no easy easy answer there. But, but for me, it's mostly just been trying to find the right balance of helping where I can, trying to steer open source where I can, try to steer the architecture where I can, and trying just to be more reasonable about how many, how many hours there are in the day. And that's, and that's ultimately, I think, what it's come down to for me. All right. Well, we'll have to continue alternating between Envoy-related shows and <laughs> human scalability-related shows. Yeah. yeah. Matt, thanks for coming back on. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Wow. Wow.